Excited to finally publish this episode that I recorded with Jed Sunwell a while ago. Jed is currently the executive director of the Radiant Earth Foundation and used to be the open data lead at Amazon Web Services. Jed is an influential thinker in the Earth observation space and he has been part of a number of important milestones in the sector that we talk about in the episode. I wanted to have Jed on the podcast to get his thoughts on the future of Earth observation, especially following one of the blog posts he had written last year. I recommend you check it out, actually. I've linked it in the show notes. In this episode, Jed and I discuss what the Radiant Earth Foundation does, his experience at AWS, the importance of building data products in EO, analysis-ready data and what that means, Jed's thesis on the future of EO, along with the three things we need, the future of open source in EO, and more. It was a very insightful conversation where we covered a lot of topics. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did. And now I bring you Jed Sunwall. Hi, Jed. Thanks for being on the podcast. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Let's get started. The first question that I usually start with is to ask guests to describe their story. So I'm going to ask the same to you. What's your story and how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Sure. Um, I'll try to keep it short. I, th- I think it's kind of a long story, but I don't think it's maybe not that interesting. But my background is actually in, in literature and policy. Uh, I'm a, definitely like a humanities guy. Um, <clears throat> studied English and Spanish in undergrad and uh, thought I wanted to be a like a diplomat, a foreign service officer. I, I was very interested in travel uh, internationally and wanted to work in you know, like development in some capacity. Uh, so I, I worked for the Inter-American Development Bank after undergrad. Uh, my family's from DC, so had a lot of exposure to that world. And um, eventually went to get a master's in foreign policy. And as I was finishing that up in 2006, I came to the conclusion, or I just sort of finally admitted to myself that I actually wasn't interested in being a diplomat. <laughs> um, and I was really, I was obsessed with the internet. I'd always been really into computers, but had never pursued uh, technology as a career. And so I, you know, with my fresh master's in foreign policy, I, I took a job as a marketing enthusiast as a startup. It was a very low level position just to get into a, a venture backed startup. Uh, this is in San Diego. And, um, have through that job and ever since have managed to work at the intersection of, of policy uh, and, and technology. And so how I got to where I am now, you know, most clearly what happened was uh, in 2014, I joined AWS to help build the open data program there and uh, started working with satellite data and really got hooked. And I know so many people in our world kind of fall into it. Um, you know, they come from a lot of different backgrounds and, and just, it's really compelling, interesting problems. And, and so I got hooked. And so when the, the role opened up for Radiant Earth, I, I decided this is just a very good fit for me and something I wanted to do. Uh, do you want to give an overview of what the Radiant Earth Foundation is? Because I don't know if uh, all listeners know what the foundation is. And I think you just joined the role a few months ago, right? So uh, we good to get an idea yeah. of um, what the foundation is. And obviously, we'll talk about how you see it going forward as well. Sure. Yeah. So, so Radiant Earth, it started about six years ago uh, with the intention of, of figuring out how to make imagery, um, including drone satellite imagery, anything, if you want to call it like broadly, like vertical imagery, uh, make it more accessible to the development community. Um, initially, there was, there was a lot of interest specifically in um, <clears throat> solving like cadastral data issues. So land ownership rights and things like that. Um, and but over the, the past few years, it's pivoted a little bit. Um, Hamad Al-Muhammad, who, is, who I'm replacing as, as executive director, 
really identified a huge gap uh, in, in terms of training data for Earth observations. And so a lot of, you know, there's tons of excitement. You see lots of venture money flowing into uh, machine learning, the machine learning space or artificial intelligence space. And I, I think what, what Hamid could see was that people kind of just like assume that this happens by itself, you know, that, that machine learning just becomes possible. But the truth is, is that all of that progress is being built on, on the back of like lots and lots of training data. And the training data just does not exist uh, for geospatial data, for satellite imagery, for drone imagery. And so uh, Radiant's been very focused on figuring out how do we produce and, and make training data, uh, planetary scale training data available to people. And so that's what we've been doing and we're gonna continue to do that. Um, moving forward, I, I think uh, we, we've had a lot of success with Stack, for example, like doing a lot of convening and community engagement. So Stack is the Spatiotemporal Asset Catalog. It's a metadata specification that's really helped with interoperability of, of large data sets. Um, I, I see us doing a lot more of that and just generally, you know, continuing to work to make it cheaper and cheaper and easier for, for research to get done using imagery, um, in, including machine learning. But I also think just broadly, there's a lot of work that we could be doing to, to make this data easier to work with and help science move faster. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think there's quite a lot of work that has been done from, from Radiant Earth. And I think, uh, this, this project called LandCoronet that, that comes to mind, uh, that, that Radiant yeah. has been leading. And, uh, you also created the ML hub. Um, that's one thing I think a few folks know in the, in the geospatial community. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, you know, the tangible projects that you guys have produced so that people get an idea of, you know, what you've done? Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just mentioned stack and <clears throat> we can talk about that a little bit later too, but, uh, so ML Hub and LandCoverNet uh, are two really good examples because um, they they do help kind of tell the whole picture. So Radiant ML Hub is our the a platform we've built uh, to sh to share data and models, and it's it's training data sets and models right now uh, that we make available to people openly. Um, every product that's on there has a DOI. Uh, we link to research, um, tutorials, and documentation and things like this. Uh, so it's just a place where people can find. Uh, really, I mean, I'm a little bit biased here, but like excellent training data. I, I I have not done the math on this, so you can decide whether or not to broadcast this or not. But I'm pretty sure like we have the largest collection of training data for Earth observation data in the world. Like just no one else has anything like this. And so Radiant ML Hub is, is what I call it like the rails to move training data sets and models out to the world. Um, it's the infrastructure we use for that. And then LandCoverNet is an example of a novel data product that we've built. Um, it's, it's a massive global scale uh, land cover training data set. And it's, uh, it's a remarkable product because this is the kind of thing that just did, could not exist a few years ago. Um, the technology that used to produce that data product and then also to host it and make it available openly is very new. You know, it's the kind of stuff that's emerged just in the past 10 years, um, more or less, I mean, maybe even less than that. And so it's an example of the kind of data products that we have on ML Hub. Um, but one thing I want to make like really clear is that the, the future is not going to be Radiant Earth Foundation running the rails and putting data products out there for everybody. We'll we'll certainly be involved in producing data products. But the the, the vision is to just show people the standards and the best practices, the right patterns um, for how to share data, like what does good look like, and have lots of people producing lots of different training data sets. 
Um, and, and one other point on that is that I think one of the the key attributes of land cover net is that we're, we're pursuing geodiversity. You know, the, the way funding works, the way research get work, the, the way research gets funded, where money for research is in the world creates a lot of biases towards training data sets being produced only for certain parts of the world to address certain issues. And we're trying to, to solve that. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think there has been, you know, at least in the in the last three years, focus on creating data sets for parts of the world where you know you couldn't find data sets for. Uh, and I think, uh, as you mentioned, Hamid has been focusing a lot uh, on radiant earth. Um, cool. Uh, we'll get to speaking about this in detail in a bit. Uh, but before we yeah. move on, I wanted to talk a little bit about your previous role. You know, obviously you're not here as a yeah. representative of AWS, but there were quite a lot of things that were accomplished in the few years that you were there. Um, do you want to talk about, you know, the milestones and, you know, I want to say successful accomplishments that uh, in your career that has come about during your time at AWS? Yeah, sure. I mean, the I mean, the main thing is Landsat, and it's it's really funny because, you know, it it was it was really a big deal, and I didn't realize I, I certainly didn't anticipate like what a big deal it would be. Um, and, but I've also spent the last, like, let's call it like seven years just talking about Landsat all the time. Like I, I, I was like known as like the Landsat guy. Just, just for people. So what, 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 what was that? Well, yeah, yeah, let me, I'll explain what happened. So when I started it, so this Chris Holmes always, always make sure Chris Holmes get, gets the credit for this. If people don't know who Chris Holmes is, he's at, he's at planet. Um, but we were friends and I told, you know, I told him I got this new job. He says, you should check out Landsat data. And at the time I'd never heard of Landsat. What we were trying to figure out when we're building the open data program at AWS is like, really, what do we have to offer the open data community? At the time, you know, most conversations around open data that we would have with governments were about like data portals, like an agency would want to put up a data portal where you would come download some data that this, this agency produced. And the truth is most of those data products are like, it's like spreadsheet scale data. Um, it's, it's kind of small. And the, the fact is that like AWS wasn't uh, super remarkable for that kind of thing. It's like you could just run any kind of server and run those sorts of data portals. But when we started looking at Landsat, we're like, okay, wait, now we're onto something. This is a data set that is potentially you know, petabytes in scale. And um, there there's certainly some ways that we could use the cloud to make it easier for people to work with. And so we started looking at it. And I had had, because of my background working at startups, and I was like working at Web 2.0 startups. Um, so this is sort of an era of the internet when APIs, like web-based APIs were all the rage. I looked at Landsat and discovered that people were accessing it in one gigabyte increments. Uh, you get a big gigabyte tar archive. Um, and I talked to a ton of Landsat users and everybody I talked to said they throw away roughly 60, maybe 70% of the, of the data they downloaded. And to me, that was just like horrifying. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, we can do better than that. And so I was like, okay, we'll host Landsat, but we will, we'll unpack the tar, the tar balls. We'll make it so that people can just get the, the geotiffs they want. And um, it was Peter Becker, a guy at Esri, um, and then Frank Warmerdam at Planet, uh, they they also they, you know they took it a step further. They're like, we can do internal tiling on this um, and add overlays, and we did the math, and that that added a, a bit of byte volume to the the data that we were going to host, which was a, which was a, an issue for us. You know, I was pretty new at AWS, and I was about to ask for permission to host like a petabyte of data, 
And I, I had to be, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I had a lot of capacity to play with, but like, you know, I still had to be very thoughtful about it. But um, we ended up posting the, the data in that way. So we just broke out the, the geotiffs, um, rearranged the binary data. So they had internal tiling and added overviews. And um, we also converted these, the metadata files that come with Landsat into JSON files to make them easier to work with. And that pattern of having TIFFs and metadata and overviews and internal tiling in an object store uh, worked out really well. Like people were like, oh, wow, like this really changes things. And people started building very cool applications on top of it because they could get the data so much more efficiently than before. And uh, the punchline here, I think that, you know, maybe a lot of your listeners will, will know is like, that's ended up becoming the cloud optimized GeoTIFF. It was like a proto prototype of the cloud optimized GeoTIFF. Um, and, and this pattern of, of sharing cloud optimized data, of having uh, metadata adjacent to it in an object store, uh, which, is, which is very much like how stack works. Um, it's really taken off and it's, it's proved out to be useful in a lot of different scenarios. So yeah. that's, that's it. I mean, you know, like it, it was, it was that thing. It was just basically me saying like, I don't want to host tar archives. Um, there was no like grand plan. It was just like, let's see if this works. And I think the fact that Landsat data is so useful and compelling. Um, and the fact that, you know, S3 is a very performance service that a lot of people were familiar with. It, it, it came together really nicely. Yeah, hundred percent. I think you you wrote a recent blog post about did you call that convergent technology or you know the convergence of a lot of technologies together? This is one example of you know something like that, right? Like where you happen to have access to this technology that allowed you to host on the most performant you know cloud um, technology in the world, and you had the opportunity to collaborate with the right people uh, who were able to put together uh, this prototype for for um, cloud optimized geotiff so is, is that how we call it convergent technology and that's kind of it's, uh, it's, yeah it's em emergent emergent the term is emergent. sorry yeah. yeah yeah and so like emergent systems like it's a really interesting concept uh to look up but like w one example i use of this of emergence but it, it's really everywhere in innovation but are the um those like you know lime or bird scooters the, the scooters yep. that are all over cities these days it's you know 10 years ago, no one would have ever imagined anything like that. But you have a combination of like advances in motor technology, battery technology, everyone having mobile phones that they're willing to, you know, allow themselves to be tracked and make payments on them. And suddenly you wake up and there are these weird scooters all over cities, like all over the world. Yeah. Cool. Let's 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 get to the the state of EO. I'm sure we can, you know, talk a lot about the the history of how Cloud optimized GeoTIFF and what it means for EO came about. Um, yeah, for listeners who are interested, you know, you can just look it up and hopefully I'll do an episode or a series of episodes on what this means and why it actually matters. Uh, but I want to yeah. get your get your thoughts on the state of EO and you know where we're going because obviously we're collecting more data than ever before. And yeah. you know, what you mentioned allows us to kind of store that properly, help access that properly. So that's a great thing, yeah. but then, you know, what are your, you know, overall high level thoughts on VR? Broadly, there's tremendous investment in sensors. Um, I think that uh, I'll, I'll take some credit for this. Like all the major cloud providers are basically competing to, to make data as, as widely available as possible. And that's awesome. So like we live in a golden era. I mean, people say this a lot, like we're in the golden age of, of earth observation. I absolutely think that's true. And it's just, it's wild. Like the, just the volumes of data that people have available to them are astonishing. But um, similar to what I mentioned before about sort of Hamid's uh, 
you know, ability to recognize the fact that like, hey, we don't have a lot of training data. Like no one's doing this. Like there are a lot of gaps to fill. And I think the main one is just that it's it's fun and exciting to launch a satellite. Um, it's less fun and exciting to just come up with software that like people can can use. Like it really like, in a scalable way. Yeah, 100%. In a scalable way, right. And um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I was listening to your podcast with, with Julia Wagaman yeah. about this, but like interoperability and stuff like that is from a while ago. Um, but like, well, I think what you call like boring problems, yeah. there's, there's still a ton of boring problems to solve and getting, making data useful and accessible to more people, we need to be much more deliberate about it. And what I perceive whenever I get to talk to, to people who work in science policy, investors, funders, they just tend to assume that like this, the market will solve this itself. And I don't think that's a reasonable assumption. I, we need to be very deliberate about it. Yeah. And what I said in I, the blog post that you mentioned before, I do talk about this notion of like new institutions. I do think we need just more kinds of nonprofit technology companies. And that's what I consider Radiant Earth to be, yeah. um, to address some of those boring problems where there, there's not opportunity to, to capture a lot of customers and, and maybe make like huge margins or you know work towards an exit. But there's really important work to be done and we need to figure out how to get that work done sustainably uh and sustainably like from a financially sustainable standpoint yeah 100 and and the and the opening up of data archives is probably not the answer to that because i feel like that is just the first step and you know i think people talk a lot about opening up the data and making it all free especially from you know of course the uh, most institutional missions are uh, open and you know free to access data, but then from a commercial perspective as well, uh, whether it's archives um, that you know some people ask for opening up, um, and then I'm already thinking, okay, let's assume all of that data is free. Can we expect uh, you know uh, an explosion in the use of Earth observation data? And part of me thinks no, because we have not yeah. made that the next step easy at all. You know, right. the one thing that you mentioned is the almost the first step of accessibility, right? Like, okay, let's assume all data is free, but then if all of them are downloadable, you know, tar files, not a lot of people are going to want to download that, right? That's right. That's right. So I actually have, like, maybe I'll just start workshopping it with you now. But like, there's I, there's this blog post I want to write uh, called, I'm just going to title it, We Don't Talk About Open Data, um, which is sort of... Um, I want to explain like why I think we need to be much more precise about how we talk about data sharing, because we are, we have been dealing with a lot of magical thinking again, let's call it over the past decade about, yeah, we open up data and then like stuff will start happening. And it's like, okay, I mean, maybe, but you have to be very thoughtful about what it means when you're, you're making data available. And so I, I taught, you've already heard me say it a lot in this podcast, I talk about data products. I think merely using the term data product sharpens your language really, really well because it forces you to think about the user. Like, what do you, what do you expect to happen here? Like, what is this thing for? Um, rather than talking about data in the abstract, as if like, and then, um, and then, and then what I'll say is like, openness is an attribute of a data product. So some data products should be open. Um, but the degree to which they're open, yeah, you have to be really thoughtful about these things. Like, is this only available on some like HPC at a specific university? Um, is it available on the internet? If it's available on the internet, like, is it in a file format that people can use? Things like that. And so um, I just think talking about open data and just and sort of <clears throat> being kind of facile about saying, let's open up the archives and see what happens. 
there's there's so much stuff that you have to get right mm -hmm. to to make things actually work. And so, but I'm lucky I get to think about that stuff full time. Yeah, hundred percent. That, that's kind of what you do. And you know, I think I, yeah, I, I've talked about it quite a lot about you know how the weather community has figured that out. You know, because we are not open sourcing observations because the global weather data is today is free. There is a global you know open data sharing policy, which yeah. means data downloaded from a NOAA satellite is now available. You know, in a country that wants to access that data for free, uh, and the file formats and the and you know all boring attributes have been figured out and the thing to remember mm -hmm. is yes those ob observations are free but then what noaa and the weather community prioritizes is the the product as you mentioned what we can yeah. get for free now is the actual forecast which is what i call product in the weather community right like the temperature right. or the humidity yep. the you know the product that we want is is kind of what they have you know open sourced it and that's kind of what we have available in our phones and you know everywhere on the internet as as weather data and i think we need a parallel talk almost you know learn the best practices of what worked and what didn't work and kind of apply that in um, in our observation i hope that's kind of where we go towards uh, because obviously there's there are differences to acknowledge because you know whether it is a public good can we argue that all geospatial data is probably good? Maybe, maybe not. So, you know, we can't just apply everything, but yeah. that's, that's that's kind of why I think that's a good parallel that we need to focus on. That's right. Yeah. And and when you think about the product, you just think about where it's going to land, you know, in, in terms of like, again, who's the user? Um, the weather analogy is a good one because people, everyone's familiar with checking the weather. Like that's a, that's a product that like people consume every day. I've never, I, but I've always been skeptical with like earth observation conversations about like, I don't think most people care about looking at imagery, you know, that's not going to be like part of their, their day. Um, and, and even in the case of like agriculture. So we do a lot of stuff because of our funders. And I mean, and that's also, it's interesting. Like we do a lot of stuff with agriculture um, and, and figuring out how to improve crop yields. I mean, that's the, the Holy grail. And there's always these conversations about like, we need to build apps for farmers to use so they can like look at, look at imagery. And I'm like, I don't really think that's going to happen. You know, especially we're working in, we work in a lot of low and middle income countries. We work with communities who have been farming that land for many generations. And I, I'm not of the opinion that like they need apps to help them do their jobs better. Um, but a product that could, you know, be delivered to them is insurance. Right. So they, the, the, the scenario, the story I like to tell in, in my head, at least, is like one day I want one of these farmers to go to like the local store where they buy seed or supplies and see a flyer for an insurance for insurance coverage that just wasn't possible before. And that insurance product would certainly be the result of you know lower cost of satellite imagery, you know, lower cost of information about the planet that they can use to underwrite an insurance policy. And the farmer gets to benefit from insurance and they're benefiting from satellite data, but they have no idea what's going on in the background. So, but so anyway, I'm, I am re reiterating your point. We need to think like, what are the products that like we really know that need to exist in the market that we can help get to the market? And it might not just, it might not be imagery. It might not be something that people look at the way that, you know, we do. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that that brings me to the topic of analysis ready data, which, you know, essentially when we're talking mm -hmm. about imagery and as you mentioned you know, not everybody needs imagery, but then we can deliver it in a form that people might want, which is kind of, I think, what you call a data product, right? So what are your thoughts on analysis-ready data today? Like, is that something that you think about at Radiant? Um, because there's a lot of conversations going on. Obviously, there are 
I guess, globally accepted definitions of what uh, analysis-ready data is and, you know, what it means. But part of me feels like every industry and every use case has a different definition. And is that kind of what mm -hmm. you are going to be doing at Radiant Earth in terms of defining what it means and setting the standard? Uh, yeah, I think in, in, in some way that I do think that, that that's our role. Um, not in a very precise way, though. Like, we're not a standards organization. I don't want us to become a standards organization. Uh, the language I use is patterns and best practices, which is uh, much more of a mouthful, but it's more accurate uh, in terms of what I think we should be doing. Um, so like Stack, the Spatiotemporal Asset Catalog, it is a very flexible specification to describe how do you share metadata about uh, spatiotemporal assets uh, in, in an object store. That's a very broad use case. It's applicable to lots of different data types, but it's been adopted very rapidly by a lot of large organizations and smaller organizations because it really helps with interoperability and stack but stack doesn't say anything about the contents of the data itself and so that so we stop short there um our another term i use a lot is sweet spot like we're always trying to find kind of the sweet spot between um a very precise recommendation and allowing a lot of flexibility and i'll just just to give sort of one more concrete example of analysis-ready data, uh, or at least you know, my opinions on it, when we started hosting Landsat on AWS, so this ancient history, it's 2015, um, everyone was like, hey, do you have atmospherically corrected data? And just to be clear, at that time, I had no idea what people were talking about because um, I was I was like such a noob in the space. Um, and, but where I landed, I was like, look, we're, we're not in a position to process this data in any way. I didn't want to create a situation where like AWS had its own version of Landsat, even if it was like easier to use. Um, and eventually, you know, USGS started doing the atmospheric correction themselves and, and releasing the product in that, in that way. And so I think people's definition of analysis ready um, is going to be constantly evolving. So, you know, at that time, it was like everyone had to do the atmospheric correction themselves. Now you don't have to do that anymore, but we're certainly gonna find some other transformation or modification that we learned that like everyone does as step zero before they start working with the data. And then at that point we'll be like, okay, data's not really analysis ready until you complete this step also. Um, but I think that's, it has to be a conversation and it's gonna be, it's ongoing. So it's hard, it's so hard to define what what ARD. Well, part of me thinks that maybe we can make some assumptions on some data products that we think industries or use cases might require. And I think one one example yeah. that comes to mind is um, soil moisture. And I think that's, that's, that was what Planet released as one of their planetary variables, uh, as they call it. Mm -hmm. And soil moisture for me was an example. And, and I kind of equate that to going back to the weather example as temperature. People can, or yeah. repeat, whatever it is, people can take that you know, data data product and do whatever they want with it, right? So wind speed is just, yeah. this is the wind speed and, you know, we have created a standardized algorithm and processing mechanism right. to get to that uh, point. And then you can use it the way you want. But this is this has been globally accepted and, you know, identified as the way to derive this product. And now people can do what they want. And I'm thinking we can probably mm -hmm. come up with some variables perhaps that can help get, adoption you know faster and easier because if you know if we want people to have their own pre-processing mechanism and write their own let's say soil moisture processing algorithm maybe it's going to be hard mm -hmm. 
but you know, if we can provide a product ourselves, it's probably going to be easier. And I think that was the assumption behind Planet launching it, right? So I'm thinking, can you yeah. go and find a few more variables like that? Would that be called analysis-ready data? And can that help the adoption? When I think of analysis-ready data, I think of a data product that somebody has decided, like, this product is ready for analysis. And like, like I said before, um, that used to be like tar archives. <laughs> like that was like the way it was delivered and people were like, okay, this isn't analysis ready. We could, we can take the, the data a few steps further to make it easier for me to work with from the jump. Like as soon as I get it, I can start doing stuff. Yeah. Um, what you're describing though with, with a planetary variables or planetary indicators is, I think it's a separate conversation, but it's a really important one, which is to understand like, what are the, like, can we find some sort of agreement on like, what are the things that we can actually me measure from space that really matter? And can we agree on like how to measure them? Mm -hmm. And soil moisture is a great example because it's really complicated how to measure soil, like soil moisture. Um, we know it's possible. Uh, a lot of people would benefit from it, but I don't think there's obvious consensus on like the right way to do it. And it's interesting because it does remind me of the atmospheric correction days where there were multiple algorithms that people could use to do atmospheric correction. People had their preferences. And um, yeah, I, I think you're onto something. There, there needs to be a, a conversation around yeah. these indicators, these variables that, that we can agree on. What that reminds me of is the three elements that you mentioned in the blog post. And you know, I think I recommend people to go and read the blog post because it was I appreciated the clarity of especially the three elements that you said that need to exist um, in the Earth observation world and where, you know, radiant Earth is also going to play a part is new data products, which we've talked about quite a lot. And the second one was new leaders, if I'm not mistaken. New right? leaders, yeah. And the third one new was... New leaders in science. Yeah, and the third one was new institutions. So essentially what you're yeah. saying is for having the conversation that we're having, we need more people who, you know, are the subject matter expertise uh, experts and coming from different disciplines but also new institutions to help, you know, facilitate that creation of those data products, right? So essentially that's your thesis behind the blog post. I'll let you explain about what you, you know, wrote about. I think a theme that like, that, that runs through all of those is that we can't, we have to be deliberate about this stuff. And and that's the conversation I have with funders um, and with, with, with policymakers as well, is that there's obviously... A lot of excitement around all the all the data we have available to us, all the satellites that are going up, um, all the potential. But we, I feel like our role is to be very deliberate about saying like, okay, but what gaps do we need to fill to really maximize the benefit of all this stuff? And again, it's new products. So identifying the gap, for example, of training data sets. Um, that's one example of new products, but I think there's there's plenty more cleanup and standardization and like reference libraries and all sorts of stuff that we could be producing that would help the community move faster. Um, the conversation we just had about planetary indicators, it, it starts to get a little hazy here, but maybe there, there are some products there that we can produce that would make, you know, make that, that happen more smoothly um, and, and get people more aligned around those indicators. Um, yeah. And then the other is new, new people, basically. So I'd say new scientists and leaders um, but one thing that we're really excited about as an organization, the whole team at Radiance really excited about is getting this data into the hands of younger and younger people. Um, we, because we have all this data available at our fingertips, available over HTTP, we've seen lots of really interesting interfaces be developed that it just, you can load up in a browser 
you don't even need to install software. And that's really important for reaching people in low and middle income countries um, that just they're not being reached by software providers. I mean, some of the software providers will go around giving out free licenses everywhere, but a lot of people still aren't don't have access to those things. But browsers are very well distributed. Lot, anyone who has access to the internet is going to be using a browser. And we, we're at a point where we can produce really interesting interfaces in browsers. We should take advantage of that and make educational materials and training materials that expose more, more people to earth observation data and earth science at young ages. And um, we see that as an on-ramp to produce more data scientists and, and more, more people working in the domain. But even if we, even if we don't, or rather like, you know, not everybody who, who takes those courses or finds these, these sites that we produce will turn into earth scientists, but hopefully some of them might turn into leaders in their communities and they'll be aware of the, of the capabilities that, that we have and take it seriously. But in, regardless, I, that sounds kind of like a fantasy, um, but we can do it. Like it's a pot, that's a thing that we can do. We just have to be deliberate about it. Yeah, maybe you've seen examples of that, right? And yeah, you know, in your time or what you produced through AWS or you know the other initiative that you were involved in, right? Digital Earth Africa and what it what it did in Africa. That that's another example, I'm guessing. Exactly. That's absolutely. I mean we know there are jobs that have been created in a lot of low and middle income countries that just would have there just did not exist before. Um and so that's extremely gratifying. And but we need to be deliberate about it. It's not gonna happen by by itself. And then, yeah, then the final point is new institutions. And that's just really a plug for, for Radiant Earth. Um, but I think there's plenty of room for organizations like ours that um, are able to build foundational, really useful technologies, uh, but without necessarily the, the explicit goal of growing 10 times or 100 times within a short time frame. I'm not against growth. Growth is awesome. It's fine. Um, but... I've, I've worked, you know, I've worked for startups. Uh, <laughs> I, I know what it's like um, when, when you have a board that has certain expectations of growth um, and it can, it just affects the way that you think about things and affects the way you, you build software um, in ways that might not be helpful for the, the whole community. And I just think there's, there's room for nonprofit technology companies uh, because of the cloud. We have access to relatively inexpensive, very scalable infrastructure and we we know that we can use the cloud to build global infrastructure that everybody can use. And I just think it's time to be really thoughtful about how do we do that in a way that we we can ensure that these tools are gonna are gonna serve the the benefit of the most people over the longest period of time. And uh, my the 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 bet that we're making now is that we can do that within the context of a, of a nonprofit in the United States that we can get enough capital to, to be able to build something like that and sustain it over the long term. So it's a, it's a, it's a hypothesis worth testing. <laughs> so we're going to see if we can do it. It's a much needed hypothesis for, you know, for figuring a few things out. And I want to come back to the second part about the new leaders aspect. So, you know, I think, uh, I think you also acknowledge the fact that it needs to be, multidisciplinary and you know we need to involve folks from other domains how can we make that much more as you mentioned deliberate because you know assume we were going to create something for analysis ready data that is applicable to a specific vertical we can mm -hmm. only do that by involving them right like if you're going to create something that is going to be useful for the agriculture community or you know the development community whoever it is you, you're yeah. going to have to 
kind of involve them in the process as well. So I'm curious to hear what what can we do from Earth Observation and within the Earth Observation community to to get that message across. Not that not just you know in terms of these data products are available, come and use it, but then also being open in a way because the 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 quantum that I yeah. have is we can't be very open, right? Like we can do whatever you want, it's not going to work. Because right. you need to go with something. So the, that balance yeah. is kind of what always, you know, bugged me about how can you get that involvement? Uh, because if it's too broad, they're not going to be interested. And if it's too narrow, you know, you're going to miss, be missing a lot of people out. So I'm curious what you think there in terms of involving new people. Yeah, this is this is where the 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 limitations of the podcast format come in, <laughs> you know, become become visible for me. Because I have a chart that I like to use to explain this. But let's see if I can if I can describe it. Um, yeah, you don't want to produce these like very like esoteric products. Um, I, I think, or at least rather like Radiant's not going to get involved in producing um, like a soil moisture dashboard for uh, rice farmers, right? Which like you can imagine like that that could be pretty great for uh, a rice farming community in a particular country. Um, but that's a very esoteric application of of a data product. And so the the way I, I explain this is like if you have a like a continuum from like raw data to highly refined data product. As you go along that continuum, you're spending money, right? So you're going like, you're just getting TIFFs from USGS. You do all this work, interface design, data analysis, et cetera, et cetera. And you end up with this uh, soil moisture dashboard. Um, you spend a lot of money to produce that product and it's only useful to a very esoteric audience. Um, so good luck making your money back. Um, it can be hard, right? So, you, and so what we do, and this goes back to this notion of sweet spots, is we try to find this space, like sort of halfway along the way, which is like, here's it's not just cogs in a bucket, but there's there's documentation, there's tutorials, there's um, some utilities you can use, you know, open source code, etc., that allows you to get started much much more quickly. So basically like the cost of producing that soil moisture dashboard, like we just cut the cost in half because we did a lot of like, we made the the initial parts either free or like a lot easier and gave people a helping hand. And so the way I characterize this is, um, it's a little bit academic, but it's, it's lowering the cost of knowledge, right? We have all this data out there, but like how do we make knowledge that we can derive from the data like cheaper? And if we, if we do that right, then... I think we can figure out how to, well, let me say it a different way because we're not figuring things out actually. If, if, we, if we do that part right, it makes it a lot easier for other people to go that last mile, um, no matter what industry they're working in. Um, if they're a policy analyst, if they're studying agriculture, if they're studying conflict, um, whatever it is, like we wanna make it easier for them or make it possible for tools to exist that those communities can use. So like they might not be building it themselves, but mm -hmm. other providers might be able to produce a, a product that they can sell to that community. I, I really like what Kevin from Planet, he was on the podcast probably a year ago now. Um, I think you talked yeah. about building blocks and I, I really yeah. like those, the concept of building blocks because, you know, you create building blocks and enable people to, you know, build on top of that as opposed to providing them, you know, a set product that, you know, only one community can use or only one 
it's applicable to only one use case, you know what I mean? So yeah, I really like the concept of that. Yeah, so I want to move on to the third aspect, the institutions part. Uh, I have a question there because obviously, you know, Radiant, as you mentioned, is one of those institutions. I'm curious, are, is there a type of institution or an institution that has a specific purpose that you think does not exist yet, but absolutely needs to exist? Because I've been thinking about it since I read your blog post about what is that institution? Because Radiant Earth, of course, you know, is, is solving an important gap um, or a capability within the um, within the industry. But I'm wondering, and, you know, obviously there are other institutions that have different purposes. You know, they have the OGC that more to do with standards and GEO, the right. Global uh, Group of Earth Observation. Uh, and there are probably more I'm missing. But what is, the, can you yeah. think of any institution that doesn't exist, but one that absolutely needs to exist. I know I'm putting you on this part, but I mean, it, there one comes to mind actually. Um, that as we're, I'm thinking about sort of the future of Radiant Earth, which is that I'm I'm not sure if we're going to be able to scale to produce all the training data sets that the world needs um, over time. And the way that we've done a lot of that work so far is that you know we've had some pretty awesome funders that we work with that have you know specific needs, and when we've been able, been able to help advise and and produce. Uh, remarkable training data sets, you know, to track field boundaries and crop types and building footprints, all sorts of stuff. Um, but we can't do all of that. And, and I, I, I'm coming to the conclusion that like, we're going to want an institution to exist. That's just constantly cranking out training data sets around the world. Um, and anyway, yeah, if, if, if now's my chance to just like, have a fantasy about this sort of stuff and just put this out in the universe. Like it would be cool if we had an endowment or something like that, mm -hmm. um, or some pot of funding to go for like 10 years and have a team of experts who know how to produce high quality training data sets. Um, and we'd have to figure out some sort of governance mechanism to decide like which ones to produce, but, um, you know, maybe do some community convening, figure out what are the gaps we need to fill? What are like the, the planetary scale training data data sets we need to have? Um, and then just start going down the list and then have this, this group of experts go in country, train people on the ground to produce those things, like start building up local capacity and then just rinse and repeat in different parts of the world. And then, so we just know on an ongoing basis, we have new training data sets coming out all the time that are useful for the, the global community. That kind of thing doesn't exist right now. Um, like I said, we've done it. Like I, I, I'm proud that we've been a part of that. Anyway, I'm just gonna put that out in the universe if anyone wants to talk about it. Yeah, let's see if that happens. I wanna ask you, so what is what are we missing in the short term that we can do to help grow the adoption of Earth observation data? Because it's a topic that I've been thinking about and I, thought, and I know that you know, you've thought about it quite a lot as well, but I'm curious, what, what can we do? Because we talked about analysis-ready data, we talked about the benefits or you know, the non-benefits of opening up the data ar archives. Um, what else needs to happen that uh, that hasn't happened yet for the adoption? You know, I think like our community is, it's a it's a bit insular. It's an awesome community. Like I love that I get to work with the, the geospatial community um, full-time now. Uh, but it's also like, there, it's pretty clear like who the cool kids are. Like it, it, it's a somewhat insular community. And um, I think we should, try to be deliberate about opening things up a little bit more. Um, I'm really intrigued by, by browser-based interfaces. Uh, the browsers keep getting more and more powerful. We have WebAssembly now. You can do really interesting stuff in browsers and 
that's an area that I really, I want us to, to focus on a lot more. Um, with the goal, like I, you know, I said of, of creating new leaders and new scientists. Um, I just tend to think that like the, the future is always going to just, is going to be interesting. Um, this is a line I got from Paul Ramsey, uh, is, you know, the, we, we know the future is going to be interesting. That's not a normative statement. I'm not saying it's going to be good or bad, but it's going to be interesting. And my assumption is that like the way that kids learn how to do stuff in the future is just going to be different than how we do it now. So if we're thinking too hard about like, you know, producing, educational curricula that follow educational standards and guidelines, which again, I think we should absolutely be doing, but I think we also have to be creating really just novel learning and teaching experiences um, to get it in the hands of people. So, and and for me, browsers are, are where that's at. I think there's so much opportunity there uh, to reach more people. Interesting. And I, and do you think that the, the commercial market for earth observation, you know, I'm not including the defense uh, industry and the use cases from the defense here, is that do, do the commercial applications then depend on what can or cannot be done on browsers? And, you know, is that going to define the uptake from a commercial standpoint for Earth observation? So, you know, browser-based, if someone develops a web interface that provides insights for a specific use case or for a specific market, they are going to be easier to scale. Is that kind of what your thesis is? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think any commercial satellite provider... Um, especially that's like somewhat vertically integrated, has to build software, has to deliver software. So they have an incentive uh, to make these things work really nicely in browsers. I think they're feel they're going to feel that pull for sure. Um, so yeah, like I think it makes sense for them. And so, but if we can open source as much of that technology as possible, um, then components of those interfaces can be used to create free educational materials. Um, yeah. Yeah, and if they're all open source, then everyone benefits. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think you you mentioned a, a a point or a word open source, and I want to ask about yeah. how do you think we can do this sustainably from a financial standpoint? Because that's that's been a question that I've thought about quite a lot. Is there are you know there are a lot of things that we can do, but then you know at at some point you know we need to look at how we're going to you know, provide the returns to the investors who are investing in, you know, whatever we're trying to build um, or just think about it commercially, right? So how, how yeah. can we look at things? Because there are a lot of people, of course, working on launching satellites. That's it's been the biggest focus yeah. in right. our industry so far. But then, right. you know, sooner or later, we'll probably move on to the boring problems, figuring out yeah. and solving yeah. them, hopefully in a financially sustainable way so that, you know, it, it continues over a period of time and you're not dependent on, you know, um, a two-year funding or a three-year funding that keeps on growing, which, which is, you know, added pressure for an industry to grow. So what are your thoughts on yeah. just the open source community? Because obviously they've brought in a lot of value, but there is a certain element of risk, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we need we need to think hard about this. Um, this is, I've got lots of thoughts. Uh, so one, the really interesting thing about our community in particular is that the volume of data that we deal with is, it's, it starts to break the old open source model in that like, you know, the open source software, you write some code, you put an open source license on it, people can run it themselves. We live in a world now where like a lot of people don't want to run their own servers. Like they really want to consume software as a service. Um, and so what does that mean in the context of open source? Um, if, you know, you're using a service that's cloud-based and the software is open source, but like you're never going to run it yourself or the value that you get from it doesn't make sense if you run it yourself because you want it to be in the cloud, like adjacent to a bunch of data. 
so the the oh, the the traditional ways of thinking about open source um, start to get a little bit creaky um, in in our world because of the, how much data we work with. the The model that comes to mind for me immediately with these conversations is that of a what's called a cooperative utility. And so, uh, in the United States, at least, and I, I'm sure this happens in other parts of the world, there there are parts of the country that are somewhat remote. And um, energy utilities won't set up business there because it's just too expensive. Like it's, it's they make much more money running a power plant for a city than they do for a few farmers somewhere. So what the farmers do is they band together and they create a cooperative utility. They create their own power plant and they all fund it together. And they get, uh, you know, the, the goal is to get the, the highest possible service at the lowest possible price because they own the cooperative. And um, I think we need more of these kinds of entities in our community. Have you seen an example um, of that yet? Uh, well, so we, we see it sort of happening with software foundations, right? So like the Linux Foundation, people, you know, there, there are plenty of organizations that are happy to pitch into the Linux Foundation. I don't think the Linux Foundation is explicitly a cooperative utility or anything like that, um, but it's, it's the same kind of gesture. Um, and so that's something I do see for Radiant Earth. That's what's happened with Stack. Um, and I, I see opportunities for, for us to do that for other technologies is to have, you know, I'd like to go around to the, anyone who has had enough money to fly a satellite to say like, hey, why don't you pitch in a few dollars to make sure that um, we can put your data to work and, and make sure that, you know, we have the, the tools necessary to, to make sure that this stuff actually gets out to the world. Yeah. And I also want to see more investors and VCs who are funding these satellite companies, A, becoming aware of these and B, you know, actively thinking about how to solve these problems, because I feel like, almost they have a stake in it. <laughs> so I want them to be involved in the conversation. And it seems like only the folks who are involved in these conversations are mostly remote sensing scientists, few commercial folks uh, in the business development teams of these companies. So, you know, that those that's, that's kind of the limitation I've seen within this community. But it'd be great to have the financial minds who have stakes and, you know, of course, those who don't have stakes as well to to look into this problem because, you know, this needs to be solved um, sustainably as well. So, yeah, let's see. Let's see if that happens. Cool. We are running out of time. I want to I want to ask a few wrap up questions uh, before we end. The first ones. Uh, what's your hard take on the state of EO today? That's exciting. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to like cast aspersions or anything like that, but like, it's exciting, but also maybe a little overheated. Mm -hmm. You know, I. uh it, I'm not a VC, but I just, I don't really know how a lot of these people are going to make all their money, <laughs> yeah. but it's exciting. I'm not mad about it. I think it's great that humans want to explore our planet and launch stuff into space. And I wish them the best. Yeah, fair enough. Good luck. <laughs> fair enough. So if you had a magic wand uh, and you wish that something changes or I don't know, becomes available overnight, what would that be? I, I would flip the research community to think that like research papers are actually advertisements for data products. So uh, anytime you read a research paper, you're like, wow, this is amazing. These results are amazing. I want to go work on the data they used and I know where to find it and I know how to mm -hmm. use it. That's not the case right now uh, at all. And so I, that's the future I want. I want research papers to be advertisements for data products. Yeah. Is there anything that we don't talk about enough in EO? It can be anything that we just didn't cover in this podcast really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for me, I, you know, I think we did talk about this, but I do think it's global institutions. Um, it, it's, you know, it's one thing to talk about nonprofit technology companies, but there's another part of this conversation, which is that we need better international organizations. Um, 
we and I'm not knocking anybody. I've got great friends that work at the UN and the World Bank and all these places, but the, those are 20th century institutions that were built for specific purposes and as you know, in a world that looked much different. Um, and you know, there was about a hundred years ago a lot of deliberate institution building happening. Um, you know, in, in the United States in particular. I mean, that's just the history that I'm most familiar with. I think we should be thinking about that now. We should be thinking about what are the global institutions that that need to exist and what would they look like? Because I think they're going to look a lot different than the UN or the World Bank, sure. you know? Um, and there are a lot of people thinking about this in like like the crypto realm and stuff like that, that I'll just I'm be, happily be on record that I'm very skeptical of that kind of stuff. But what they're thinking about is, is still important. It's like we need to think about like how do we cooperate as a species um, globally? And can we use technology to do that more effectively? I, th I think we can. And yeah, those are conversations I think we're lucky to have because we get to work with planetary scale mm -hmm. data that affect everyone on the planet. Yeah, 100%. All right, last question. What's coming up for Radiant or anything else that you'd like to plug before we, before we close? Right now we've got a, we've got a challenge running uh, with NASA Harvest uh, doing boundary collection or, or boundary detection challenge. Um, so you can check that out. You can go to... If you just go to Twitter or Our Radiant Earth on Twitter, you can see all the latest news from us and follow us there. Um, but you know, moving forward, I think we're I'm really excited for us to start looking beyond Stack and starting to work on on other shared patterns and best practices that we can help the, to move the community forward. So that's one thing I'm I'm really excited about happening in the coming year. And then other things we can do to just make uh, Radiant ML Hub more accessible to more people. Makes sense. Anything else we missed before we close, Chad? We covered a bunch of topics. No, this is great. I mean, we, we could talk, we could obviously talk all day. So. But yeah, it was great having you on, Jed. I mean, we covered a bunch of topics and it was great uh, discussion. I think I enjoyed that and I hope the listeners get to enjoy that as well. No, Aravind, it was, it was wonderful. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it.